The Martians are struggling to move and they're just exhausted. It's like the equivalent of a cold call and knocking on the door when you're feeling really ill, but you've got a heat ray. It's like, oh, who are these? None of those little little stickers that you put up say go away. Nothing like that. Weaponize that shit. And then he realises that now his house must be in range of this heat ray. <laughs> and that's where an Englishman gets real. Turns, looks up to the horizon, grimaces and goes, Oh no. No. Hell no. An Englishman's home is his castle, you bastards! Hello and welcome to Shark Live Royal. I'm Matt. I'm Dave, hello. And this is part two of the War of the Worlds. (laughs) (laughs) I can't get enough of your musical interludes on Shark Live Royal, Matt. I really can't. This is is really weird, though, because now... When you start on a baseline, I kind of know where you're going with it. Whereas previously, I have to be on absolute tentooks to be like, is it going to be R. Kelly? Is it going to be Beethoven? It's <laughs> very broad yeah. range. But now it's Jeff Wayne or nothing. I'm into yeah, all, all, all little musical intros um, during these, the War of the Worlds series um, will be from the musical version of the War of the Worlds and will become clear to you when you, when you listen to it. Um, towards the <laughs> Which end I still of haven't series. done yet. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm still saving end. myself. Yeah. 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 So, this is the second part of our read-through of uh, H.G. Wells's The War of the Worlds. Um, I nearly said Our War of the Worlds then. Like, like, of the world. like Game of, of Thrones. Like Our Game of, of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so this is, this is part two. We're going from um, chapter nine, The Fighting Begins, um, as far as chapter, what was it? It's just after chapter... What, what had happened in Surrey, which yeah. in any other context <laughs> would be the world's least interesting chapter title. But, <laughs> but actually, this section's so good that I was like, you know what? Maybe something interesting has happened in Surrey mm. for the first and last time in recorded history. <laughs> um, if you want to pass any comments on The War of the Worlds or on the podcast in general, sharkliveroyalpodcast at gmail.com is the email address. That's sharkliveroyalpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at sharkliveroyal. And of course, get your reviews in. Uh, now is the time, or sort of over the next few weeks, to start sending in your reviews. We'll re- read those out at the end, um, probably in a couple of weeks' time. So, chapter nine, the fighting mm-hmm. begins. So <clears throat> we, we last left off on a bit of a cliffhanger. These cylinders had arrived. The Martians were here. They just sort of killed a lot of people with the heat ray. Uh, Ogilvy and his crew went up with that little white flag and got incinerated <laughs> so it wasn't I, I i do like the reportage approach that was taken to that where you've just got one guy telling you the story and he happened to be 100 meters away so you just kind of see it happen in the middle distance yeah. but i do think there was comedy missed by not having them all walking up being terribly british twirling their mustaches and going well obviously fellows just be completely fine with 200 years of solid diplomatic experience and be exactly the same as dealing with the people of the southern sudan here we go <sighs> chop 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 chop. <laughs> End. Yeah. The real, the real um, sort of, the real pain, um, sort of historically and in terms of legacy for Ogilvy, Ogilvy and his mates. Uh, he's not even part of the fighting because the fighting begins in this chapter. So he was just like an, an appetite for the fighting. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's fantastic. Love the, the aliens sitting in the bottom of the crater, absolutely incapable of movement, sitting there going, but somehow with French accents, going, Jacques, un aperitif? 
Ah ouais, c'est bon ça. Oh, il y a le, le human being. Ouais. Ah, bon. Avec le zap, 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 ouais. Ouais, ouais, c'est bon. We go. Une apéritif. <laughs> oh yeah, because we spoke in the last chapter about how because of the gravity, the Martians are struggling to move and they're just exhausted. <laughs> and you can imagine, yeah, it's like the equivalent of a cold call and knocking on the door when you're feeling really ill, but you've got a heat ray. It's like, oh, who are these guys? Are pro- oh, boop. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can all get alongside the idea of front door, doorbell mounted heat rays to deal with cold callers. None of those little little stickers that you put up saying, you know, I'm not buying anything and I'm not selling anything, so go away. Nothing like that. Weaponize that shit. Just get them, get the problems sorted. Yeah, they, they, you see that the, the real tragedy is Ogilvy, Ogilvy missed the um, the little sign that they hung out saying no white flag rave, uh, waving uh, astronomers <laughs> and journalists, please. Absolutely no diplomats. Cannot be clearer about this. Yeah. So chapter nine, the fighting begins. Saturday is uh, is very much described as a day of suspense. Things are kind mm. of going on as normal, even though this weird thing's yeah. happening on the common. Um, he sort of his first contact the next day is with a, a milkman on his rounds, and the milkman says that the, the these guns have been moved up now. Um, sort of to, as part of the cordon that's been around the Martians. Yeah, um, yeah. But the soldiers have been ordered to to avoid killing if possible. Um, yeah. and, and the neighbours, he speaks to a neighbour as well, and the neighbours are saying, like, you know, it's a bit of a shame that we're going, it looks like we're going to have to kill them because they sort of, because they started, you know, playing fast and loose with this heat ray so early because we, we could have learned a bit from them. Um, <laughs> and, and nobody questions it. And, and, you know, we've spoken about this kind of weird sort of, you know, how much of a portrait of the British Empire at its very height this is. But mm. I do quite like that H.G. Wells, writing in a contemporary kind of setting, um, was aware enough of that to kind of know the hubris and the drama that would come from how, you know, British people at the height of the British Empire, in much the same way as I, I imagine many American people would respond these days, just being like, of course we're going to beat them. Beating people in wars is what we do. Mm. And, like, to really mine that for the irony, I just I flipping loved it. It was great. Yeah, yeah. And it, it is this whole part that we're reading through today, I think, is a slow reali- realisation of, of sort of how dangerous these things are from, yeah. you know, it's a shame that we're going to have to kill them too. It's going to be a fight, but we've no doubt we're going to win To This is, you know, this it's is the looking end. really bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 And I, I do like how much he invests time in just, like you say, the slow burn, this sort of day of tension. Whereas in most thriller writing these days, they're just like, no, 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 get to the action scene. Come on, get to the cliffhanger. And this, mm. he puts... I mean, it's two, three chapters, something like that. Like, the action starts up really well again pretty soon, but he really does do well at sketching the sort of the world and people just moving through it normally and, like, how much of a trauma this is going to be comes across because of the way he expresses the normality of that English countryside and just mm. everybody, you know, kind of going going to and fro, just doing their thing. Um, you know, they could never have imagined that intelligence is far in, you know, like yeah. it really does actually make you feel that. Yeah. Um, he has an after, he has a walk to, towards the common in the afternoon um, and to the cordon. And he has, ends up having this chat with these sappers who he, um, again, these are, these guys are described as wearing the sort of, they've got these blue tunics on beneath the red coats. So it's very much play. It's funny because when you see, um, 
even representations of this which are supposed to be like true to when it's been written you know, like artwork and stuff the soldiers are actually i think this is where i got it from the soldiers are often depicted as being effectively first world war soldiers and it, it's not oh, really yeah. that it's, it's earlier than that so these guys are in the red coats these sappers and the sort of helmets and stuff yeah. and um and he sort of he has more time for the sappers than the common soldiers. He thinks they're a bit more intelligent. And there's this sort of brief, again, kind of hilarious in terms of how he's written their their um, their quotes. But this discussion about how best to to sort of attack the the Martians and how best to fight them. And some of them want to sort of mine beneath them. Some of them want to rush in quickly. Some of them want to, you know, there's various different tactics that they're being discussed. And yeah. a, a bit later on, he's he's very much in a mindset at the moment where he's kind of almost excited about the coming battle, um, even the narrator, and um, yeah. he's imagining the ways in which they're going to be defeated, the Martians. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and again, it's hubris, but again, it's really, really well sketched. And again, there's something really pleasing about somebody in what you can well imagine being like a starch dress coat and a perfectly curled moustache being completely unaware that he's about to get totally owned mm. um is it's just really good sort of dramatic uh writing and dramatic scene setting and, and use of characterization and setting it's you know it's it's fantastic and there's aliens you know what's <laughs> not to love so uh, we, he goes back home in the evening um has his cold bath and a dinner and uh, the, he hears the sound of the fighting beginning. Um, and there's an explosion. It's basically a big col- college which screens his house from the common. And that basically collapses in an explosion. And then yeah. he realises that now, because he can see the common very clearly, he's, he, his house must be in range of this heat ray. So... Um, immediately, and that's just... where an Englishman gets real. In a different setting, <laughs> this would be where where he just kind of turns, looks up to the horizon, grimaces, and goes, "Oh no, no, <laughs> hell no!" Tears so off he... the waistcoat, gets absolutely ripped, and is just like, "An Englishman's home is his castle, you bastards!" <laughs> yeah, he runs over to the pub, and um, not just have a drink. Runs over to the pub to. Um, to, to to get the key to get sort of borrow this horse and cart from the um, the landlord because he doesn't have his own, and um, he gives him like two quid to just to borrow it. He says, and the landlord's like, look, I can't provide a driver, um, and they're gonna have to charge you this. And he's like, no, it's fine. I'll give you two quid and I'll bring it back in about an hour or two. And, yeah. the, and the landlord's like, what is the rush? And and it's quite funny because the narrator says, I just got the cart, got out of there, got my wife and you know the maiden or the servant or whatever and we made a run for it i didn't really think about whether the landlord might need his car as well. <laughs> <laughs> very outcome focused this fella isn't he he's all over it i um yeah. I, I like the fact that there's like a little comedy interlude when he runs into the pub to try and hire the thing and there's a guy at the bar who basically <laughs> is like is negotiating a price with the landlord and says, right, I'll give you a quid. And and Wells or whoever it is runs in and goes, I'll give you two and I'll bring it back in two hours time. And the landlord just goes, the pig? You're, I mean, two quid's very welcome, but why are you going to bring the dead pig back in? I don't want it back. I'm selling it to you for sandwiches. What's wrong yeah. with you? Oh, I'm ter- terribly sorry, old man. Uh, your, your horse and cart. Uh, also, when I said two, I meant one pound. I will pay you less. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like how he's honest about it, though, actually. He doesn't try and say, oh, and I obviously assumed that the landlord could do this. He just thought, yeah, and I didn't give two fucks about the landlord, I'll be honest. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Chapter 10, In the Storm. 
So the the plan is to to sort of flee to to Leatherhead down the road, and um, he gets there. Um, he sort of speeds there, and he actually goes in the horse and cart and. He describes just at the end of the last chapter. He sets off down the road as fast as he can, and there's a doctor like um, in front of him with this um, with his own horse and cart, and he sort of he, he overtakes him along the way, and it's just like <laughs> matter of factively like, yeah, we overtook him about this point. Yeah, um, <laughs> he, he he gets into Leatherhead. He drops his he drops his wife off with his cousin, and then decides to go back to Maybury to drop off. He, ostentatiously to drop off the cart but as much because he wants to be sort of he basically says he wants to be there at the end he wants to sort of yeah. almost experience that the, the victory if you like when the yeah. Um, yeah. when the soldiers beat the the martians um and this journey back then is where we get a very um it's, it's very atmospheric the rain starts to come down it's, it turns oh, it's to a bit good, of a storm isn't it? yeah yeah yeah, he. I tell you, it's really interesting how differently I responded to this this whole passage now that I've um, I've been in that part of the world and I sort of have a bit more of a sense of sort of the English countryside, if you like. Because when I read this when I was thirteen, I was mm. like, "Why is he saying, you know, ten minutes past this milepost, and then there's a post box on the left, and then you go a bit further, and there's a hill, and there's a yeah. church on top of the hill, and obviously that means something." Um, but now I realise that it's a fantastic scene setting of like. He's describing the kind of knowledge that people had of their locality in an age where you couldn't travel very far unless you were very wealthy. And, like, you know, where you did really know every bobble in the land. And then he mm. makes all of that stuff relevant to the fact that there's these, like, unbelievably terrifying aliens with weaponry, which is relevant to the sort of shape of the land and all of that. And then yeah. he just brings it all to bear on this one passage where he's like... And now I'm going to make it the tensest thing you ever heard, that I went down a road that had a slight incline and then reached the top and saw something and then ducked down behind it. And he was brilliant. Like, I've mm. never never before had topography described in such a way that it forms <laughs> part of the plot. But it's fantastic. It really worked. Yeah, and he, he's so... Um, this is where he gets his first sight at these, uh, these fighting machines that the Martians have, which are basically described as sort of tripods. Um, with a like a, a, a sort of a pod at the top where the where the, sort of the Martian sits in this hood, and um, he sees them through lightning flashes. You know that the rain's coming down and lightning flashes, and he sees something moving up the road, and then he sees it again in the next flash. Um, and actually, when the when when the second tripod appears on the road, it startles him so much that he, he basically crashes the um, horse and carriage, and, and the horse the horse actually is killed straight away. Yeah. Um, and he described the description of this machine is, as I say, a tripod um, with these two sort of tentacles, like metallic tentacles on the edge, which can, can pick things up. Um, and then there's a white basket on its back and green smoke, which sort of for, emits for the, from the joints. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just imagine them putting it together, can't you? You know, all this thought they put into their like interstellar or interplanetary travel. And then they get there, they're just about to launch, and they're like, Bob. Bob, what? We're about to launch the fucking... Yeah, but, Bob, what are we going to... What are we going to carry things in? What do you mean we're going to carry things in? Well, there's a chair in there and a couple of switches, and I'm cramped as it is. Where, where are we going to Where are we gonna put all the stuff that I want to take from Earth? You know what? Use your tentacles. I can't use my tentacles, Bob. It's not going to happen, mate. Look, you got to give me a, a basket or something. Right, fucking hell, come on. Get it bolted on there. 
this reminds this really reminds me of um, last Christmas for um, for my mum's birthday because her birthday is when Christmas. We got her um, a, a, a she wanted a new bike. We got her a lovely new like bike with a with a basket. Nice. And the but when it, when the bike arrived, um, I feel like obviously a week before, so we're putting it together. They hadn't sent the basket, so we had to send off and say, "Look, you sent us a send us a fucking basket." And um, I just, I just when you said that, when you said it's like for the shopping, I just imagine like them landing and then a little green cylinder shooting back towards Mars, going, "You forgot the basket." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what is Martian Morse code for you fucking morons? I won't be able to carry anything. <laughs> Incomplete delivery, please Incomplete resend. Incomplete delivery, <laughs> refund required. <laughs> Yeah, so um, that's his first sort of uh, sight of this this tripod. Then um, he then has to sort of make his way on foot back towards Maybury, and he's not really thinking much at this point. He's, he's kind of in shock because obviously he was expecting just to get yeah. back to Maybury and then see the soldiers overrun this pit. And um, as he's still coming to terms with what he's seen, he's sort of stumbling back through the woods. Um, and on the lane on his way home, he, he comes across a body, which um, and it turns out to be it's the landlord, and his neck's been broken. Looks like he's been um, yeah. Doesn't know exactly what's happened, but yeah, he's, he's just lying there with a broken neck. Yeah. Um, yeah. Suddenly, again, another sort take, of another body appears. Absolutely, and takes a turn. And uh, the thing it made me think of was. Um, I think this is sort of a feature of almost every generation is of people freaking out about whatever the new media format is and saying that it's going to kill everybody. Mm. Um, but, you know, when I was a kid, I was conscious of people talking about things like video nasties, you know, and, and you know, like kind of, oh, these films that are going to debase our morality and so on. You know, look at all these horribly, horrifyingly graphic images. And you're like, all right, fair enough. You know, images are particularly powerful, but this is, you know, one of the most mainstream books of its era. Mm. And it's got, you know not gory but certainly not shy descriptions of people lying in ditches with their necks broken and stuff like that Mm. um and it is shocking because it's somebody you've interacted with before and because it's somebody that he's interacted with and screwed over essentially or selfishly disregarded before because he's confronted right away with the consequence of that of that selfishness um and it's like he's i tell you what hg wells he knows how to throw a punch doesn't he he's 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 not missing anything at this point yeah uh so so he he gets home and he he locks the door and then he sort of goes up to his study which has a big window looking out now over the common and he sort of just sits there and watches it um during the night and and the scene now is there's a lot of um, lot, there's a lot of it's on fire, a lot of it's charred, and and, and um, you can't you can't really see much of it because it's nice. You just see the flames flickering here and there. There's the silhouette of a, a wrecked train. It basically just looks like a battle. Like it felt to me like almost without the sort of shell damage, a sort of a World War One sort of battlefield now. Yeah, yeah, that's a very interesting parallel, particularly since this was written before the First World War, like. Mm. So I wonder, I've no idea about H.G. Wells' sort of biography or anything, but I wonder if he had been in, say, the Boer War, for example, which was the first war where they properly used, like, infantry, artillery type thing. You know what I mean? Like, horse-drawn cavalry artillery. Mm. Um, uh, I wonder if he had seen some of that, because it's a fairly sort of profound description of a, a war zone which mm. if he was just a sort of bookish type who'd stayed in England, he definitely would not ever have seen. Yeah. Um, 
But it's a really good description of it again. Yeah, it's funny because I think it might be this chapter or a bit later. At some point, where he's describing the sort of the scene on the common, sort of he says like you you've never seen you you would never have seen destruction like it, and mm. it is quite prescient. Is like that is exactly how it would have been. It will be described in in you know in reality in twenty years time um, when mm. the first world war happens. Um, yeah, you've never seen anything like the kind of destruction that you can see on these battlefields. Yeah. Um, so, uh, sort of in the middle of the night, um, he sort of—I think he drifts off, or you know, no, he looks down um, at, in his front garden and he sees this uh, soldier climbing over the fence, and um, he welcomes him into his house, and it's this artillery, artilleryman um, hmm. who says, you know, he asks him what happened, and the guy just simply at first just says they, they wiped us out. We, we we get a bit more from this guy, who and it seems like he he had the sort of kind of the luckiest guy on the battlefield because his horse falls he's on a horse and it fell um literally moments before it seems the heat ray got turned on his battalion or his his sort of his group of soldiers and everything just went everything went up in in smoke but because he sort of had just fallen into this ditch he survived and then he sort of lay there and watched the um the advance of these fighting machines yeah um, and the the use of the heat ray, and I think there's this thing which says that the the cardigan regiment tried like a, a, a tried to attack, and they just got wiped out of existence in one sort of flash of this ray, and yeah. it just gives you an impression of just how powerful these these things are. Yeah, yeah, very much, really, really dramatic, and I was particularly struck by, like you say, the sort of bleakness, that sort of almost post-apocalyptic, you know, kind of certainly post-traumatic. Uh, response that he gets from this guy when he meets him you know what happened we got wiped out that's the sort of dialogue i'm used to hearing in vietnam war films mm. and i think it's really interesting to me that i'm used to hearing it in those films and you know vietnam was watershed conflict in all sorts of ways but in a sense depictions of warfare have always needed to be that real about how bleak it is and mm. this is 70 years older than any piece of fiction about the vietnam war and yet it is st it still has that like just absolute flat gut punch moment where you're like, yeah, we died. There was nothing to be done. Mm. Yeah, and I like this as as they're talking. At first, he says, you know, when the guy arrives, he can't see his face. He just this this shadow that talks basically. And then yeah. as 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 the sort of dawn comes in, um, he gradually sort of can see each other. And he can see it out on the lawn, on his lawn, that there's there's sort of footprints of animals and people who've who've been across the lawn in the night as well, who he obviously hasn't seen. Yeah. Um, and and then the sort of the battlefield becomes clearer as well, and he sees these three um, tripods standing above the pit, sort of keeping watch and just surveying the the terrain. So they've obviously just sort of advanced out a bit to basically widen whatever cordon was around. Yeah. Whatever cordon was around, the Martians have pushed it out. Yeah, um, yeah, hmm. yeah. Crazy, the, eh? Yeah, this continues sort of hammering that you constantly hear from the pit at every stage of when this battle happens now and and later on as well. After what happens at the sort of Waverley and Shepperton area, it's always the backdrop of the continued work going on in the pit. It always feels like every sort of hour that goes by, the Martians get stronger because they're continuing to sort of put into practice whatever plan they've got in there so yeah i don't know i had a real sense of um the the initiative sort of slipping away from from the humans as well as this goes on 
Um, yeah. You're thinking, yeah. you know, if you could move quicker, maybe maybe be more effective. Yeah, um, yeah, very, very much. And and but again, it's great for the slow build, isn't it? Like mm. again, like how do you employ like because my how do you employ what my mind equips as just sort of the sound of somebody doing up nuts and spanners and again putting together like IKEA furniture, IKEA war machine basically is what we're talking about here. <laughs> how do you manage to make that like tense? But just in the background, I'm hearing every clank, and I'm like, oh no, is something terrible's gonna happen? <laughs> we got a cataclysmic situation developing. <laughs> Um, so what the 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 two decide to do the um, the artillery man says he, he's got he wants to try and get to London to sort of hook up with his battalion again, and obviously uh, the narrator wants to get back to Leatherhead just to to sort of meet his wife, and the sort of the artilleryman helps him a bit because a he makes him go a slightly different route because he says it's too dangerous to try and go directly. Um, along the road you came in at now and yeah. also before they leave he makes them sort of stock up on supplies um, yeah. just to give them sort of a, a bit more of a chance um, yeah we then move on to chapter 9 what I saw, is it 9 or 12 what I saw of the destruction of um, is it Waybury and Shepparton hang on, let me lower the door we may, as well, <laughs> we, may as well, we may as well get it right let's get, it, let's get the facts, <laughs> just the facts Matt uh, which which sort of small part of the English countryside we're visiting there? It's Weybridge and Shepparton. Yeah, yeah. Um, Would have made all the difference if it was Wokingham and Winnish, obviously. But, um. <laughs> Winnish. Winnish. Uh, the so, so they, they they head towards towards London, and um, they meet these cavalrymen um, who were sort of I think the hussars, and they're going um, sort of house to house, telling people to to leave. Um, and then they meet this this other group, I think, that, that are heading towards the front, if you like, and they give them a, an idea of what they're up against. And they, unsurprisingly, they don't quite believe it when the artillery yeah. is just saying, yeah. yeah, these massive machines on tri- on three legs. And they're like, you what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you been... Are we, are we doing that thing where soldiers get given hallucinogens to make them better at fighting? Because it sounds a lot like they've been given something really mental. Um, I... <laughs> Uh, you, and you're right. Like it's a great like little scene. Um, it again really reminded me of um, uh, Band of Brothers. Yeah, remember Band of Brothers, the yeah. fourth episode, where where there's that brilliant scene where like you know the, the this particular position is about to be surrounded, and so all the army's getting out except the paratroopers who are walking in. Yeah, because it's their job to be surrounded, and that like members of different units traveling one towards this kind of incredible peril and one relievedly away from it um and that kind of that like fleeting moment of what's going on if i told you you would not believe me yeah um that kind of again matter of fact thing about combat yeah they're told to go to the artillery man's told to go to raybridge to report to the brigadier general there so they head off in that direction and again yeah as they're making the way over to Weybridge they pass these um, in gun emplacements sort of standing waiting waiting for the Martians to emerge and um, it's a great quote from the artilleryman who sort of looks at it and just says the bows and arrows against the lightning um, yeah. just that sort of I thought it was a really atmospheric thing to say. <laughs> Damn right! Like that's and, and you know war poetry. It's a thing, um, and mm. I do love the sight of somebody with that sort of brain being. Well, the most useful thing I can do here is shoot at things that are definitely going to kill me. You know, mm. um, 
uh, and there's, as as there has always been, there's something incredibly romantic about um, a moving about that. I should say, um, mm. you know, this guy just being like, well, being able to describe it in pretty terms probably isn't going to do anybody any good here. So here we go. <laughs> Um, again there's a there's a british empire thing there as well i think with um with the uh you know this because there was basically the growth of the british empire really did depend upon the massive disparity in like warfare technology between um the british empire and uh many many of the places it was trying to conquer Mm. um you know and and again that that the difference in weaponry is like putting the British Empire on the other end of that sort of thing yeah. is a very, very powerful image. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I suppose for a lot of the... Um, for, yeah, for a lot of the areas being invaded by um, the British Empire, it, it literally was bows and arrows against the, the, the lightning sort of gunfire. Yeah, um, absolutely, yeah. And, and particularly placing this, you know, within a stone's throw, this whole action takes place within a stone's throw of the British Army's main base at Aldershot. Yeah, um, I don't think that's a mistake. I think that's a really powerful piece of positioning. Yeah, they, they get to this place called Byfleet, and Byfleet's—it's weird this place because it's sort of—I think it's about lunchtime now, and um, and it's a Sunday, and it's sort of everyone's being—it's being evacuated this time, so everyone's being told to get out, um, but no one really understands the urgency. So you've got a lot of people like in the Sunday best and like boating gear and stuff. <laughs> and it's it's all quite like it, there's a weird atmosphere. Like the kids all the children are really excited and um yeah. I think a lot of the people are a mixture of sort of boisterous to irritated about they're having to sort of do this on the Sunday. Um mm. there's a guy, there's this old chap with a, a load of orchids in pots and he's arguing yeah. with this um this soldier saying, yeah. you know, I, I want to take my orchids, they're worth a lot. And um, <laughs> the narrator goes all sort of prophet of doom on him. He grabs him and goes, it's death coming, death, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> just, it's just a little overdramatic for him, but I suppose he has seen what he's seen. Absolutely. I mean, he's seen what he's seen, but I do love that it's not like he goes through this, it's not like he cracks and then after this he's just, you know, rocking back and forth. You know, wearing wearing nothing but a Mac, muttering about the end of the universe. No, no, he's he's still very buttoned up, but he just occasionally it bubbles over, and it bubbles over in the most fantastic, you know, Old Testament prophet of, as you say, prophet of doom way. <laughs> where he's like, kind of, you don't understand. The wrath is coming. The wrath of the tentacle things. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, there's this bit that the um, uh. The guns suddenly. There's this sort of scene where everyone's sort of leaving, but at a fairly leisurely pace. It's very busy on the on the riverbank, and um, you know, there's there's sort of a crush to get across the river, but more of a crush is like, do you know when you're stuck in a queue on the motorway and everyone's pushing in just because they can't be asked waiting? It's not like panic. Yeah. It's just you know people just getting impatient. Um, Are you saying, Matt, that that modern Britain normally resembles Victorian Britain in the height of an alien invasion? Because I think that's quite <laughs> funny. Like the height of domestic panic back then is what is just Saturday trying to get into IKEA at Wensbury. To be honest with you, 
Yeah, no, no. What, what I'm trying to say is, it, it there really isn't a sense of panic at this stage. It's just people rush. Sort of, there is a crush to get on the boats and stuff, but only insofar as people just want to get on with the rest of the Sunday, rather than people uh, <laughs> in fear of their lives. Come on, if we get ahead of this, we'll beat the we'll beat the alien invasion traffic because you know what it's like on a Sunday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, this all changes when the guns start to fire in the distance. And I love how this is described because it's not sort of the guns start to fire and everyone starts screaming, um, which I think a poorer writer would have done. It's yeah. sort of the guns start to fire and then there's just this silence as everyone stops and just watches it. Yeah. Um, and there's a yeah. sort of a, almost like a minute or two of it where people are just sort of frozen and yeah. almost like, I don't know, there is something quite um, natural and animalistic about that, almost like freezing and crouching. Yeah, and then very sort much, of the yeah. panic starts to spread, um, and people start to run um, as these uh, as the machines start to appear. Yeah, and I think that's actually that's to a certain extent that's related to um, uh, the narrator wanting to be back at the in at the death. You know, there's this thing of like this awful thing is happening, but my natural state of being is to be a spectator to the things that happen in my life rather mm. than an actor in it, and so. I'm just going to watch. My first instinct actually is to watch. And then it slowly overtakes everybody, the, you know, the reality of the fact that they are not mere spectators to this. If they're not careful, they're going to be in the headline, in the body count. And so, and you know, and it kind of, as you say, it bubbles up slowly and it makes it far more powerful, I think. Hmm. Um, now, the, so these, uh, these fighting machines appear and sort of head towards the town and start to attack the guns are firing and there are these six guns that um fire from this concealed position and they actually hit one of the martians right in front of the narrator and one of the shells gets a direct hit on this hood and the thing is like the the martian inside's killed instantly yeah. and this sort of tripod goes sort of whirling to destruction and like it actually lands in the water and and um and turns the river really hot and that's just so happens to be where the narrator is because he's tried to Get under the water to to avoid the heat ray, um, but but ju- just Irony. this mo- <laughs> yeah, but just this moment where the um where the the guns sort of fire and, and and the Martians killed, it was a real sort of sense of I don't know I got a real sense of satisfaction from it, just like oh one back for the you know for the defenders. it is isn't it it's the yeah. it's the moment where Will Smith punches the alien in the face after shooting it down <laughs> in the desert, isn't it in Independence Day? That's the you're like welcome to Earth. Even though you're getting absolutely <laughs> hammered by these fucking things, you know what I mean? There's just no, there's no describing the contest in such a way that you come out looking like anything other than an abject loser on points and nearly a knockout at this point in the fight. <laughs> but you're still like, yeah, fucking yeah, come on. <laughs> yeah, I think there was this sort of flash of hope from that as well. The fact that you know these things aren't invincible and they can be killed. And um, yeah, this is an example of, you know, the sort of conventional weapons that they've got can be effective here. Um, the It actually stops the Martian advance as well because they they stop and pick up the sort of, the remains, like the yeah. body and the and the actual um, damaged machine and head back yeah. to the common. So it's, um, it's actually checked for a minute as advance and I thought that was quite interesting. Uh, yeah. Partly because of, the, you, don't, you don't know the reason behind why the Martian have done this, but is it, something to do with like the loss of the the comrade or is it simply to sort of keep the technology out of the hands of the um of the enemy i don't know could be i mean i i think it's an image of one of those things which i mean 
in our age this is no longer quite the case but for many thousands of years it was true that there was this sense of a shared you know like the, the kind of shared honor you know people are going to put themselves in danger and then you're going to let people recover the wounded and stuff like that 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 is a mm. that you do that because you want to be able to recover your wounded and the in the end the dignity of those wounded is more important than um the the principle of winning the war um which i think is no longer held to be the case these days um uh and you know i do also wonder what happened to the dignity of those wounded while they were still alive but um but it is this kind of humanizing moment uh Mm. for the aliens where they're kind of you know they're shown doing what human beings would do and again i think there's a really interesting thing here of showing you know you're right we've no idea what their their motivation is but showing them um acting in a way which is comprehensible in our cultural mindset when everything else they can do is so far outside what is normal to us kind of makes them scarier to me like there's just a piece of it where you're like oh god they recover their wounded as well and they can absolutely hammer us you know they're not inhuman they're quite human and they're going to destroy us Mm. um again you know again puts you on the the receiving end of all of that kind of you know massive superiority of numbers that are experienced generally experienced by people with other passports than mine and that's Mm. quite that's quite sobering for me actually it's quite an interesting little moment yeah this um this decision for the martians to retreat as well pretty much saves the uh the narrator because he's been driven out of the sort of boiling water of the river and um it's sort of ends up sort of almost kneeling in front of one of the uh, machines, but it's it's sort of preoccupied with, with heading back towards the common with its fallen um, comrade now. So he's ignored and survived, yeah. effectively. Yeah, yeah. Um, which brings us to chapter 13, how I fell in with the curate. Curate. Um, so... The, uh, I quite like how this how this line begins, and I got this sort of this sort of welcome to earth satisfaction that you discovered. <laughs> it says that the first line is um, after getting this sudden lesson in the power of terrestrial weapons. Is <laughs> <it's> describing <laughs> the reaction of the Martians? <laughs> <laughs> That's totally true. Uh, do you think he's being sarcastic? There is that the best dry humour of Victorian literature, or is he giving it a bit of the old you know kind of yeah fuck off. Um, <laughs> Is he having got you know, having been roundly beaten in every single interaction for forty eight hours straight? We hit one of them, showing them our superiority. <laughs> yeah, I got got me the impression. I it gave me the impression that um, the narrator's saying that you know maybe these things were a little overconfident in thinking they were going to just roll over um, these defenseless sort of this is these yeah. defenseless creatures, yeah. and they've had this sudden charge, like you know. It's like a some like a bear that puts its hand into a um into a a bee's hive and like gets stung. It's like oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and he, but he says yeah, it's, it was lucky that they they were stopped there because if they'd have pressed on to London at that point, um, it would have been much worse in the capital. Um, yeah. This this then moves into a bit of a standoff. So the sort of the armed forces, of course, are now have gotten wise to the fact of how dangerous these things are, and there's this massive build-up of cannon and guns. Um, in it, some like he says, pretty much every um, every hill has now got a gun on it as they sort of pre- preparing for this advance. I, I thought it was interesting that um, the the approach of uh, of the armies to defend 
sort of the yeah. set up defensive points and and hold and that's really interesting because I think it's that's something that was quite new at the time um yeah and was actually so new that it, it cost a lot of lives in the first world war because people weren't weren't used to it yet but the idea of defense being stronger than attack and now you've got the maxim gun they've got machine guns um sort of finding somewhere to fortify and sitting there is much more effective conventionally than than charging which which was sort of charge like a charge was basically how you won battles for for centuries before this yeah 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 so they so they're sort of so you've got this armed build up at the same time you've still got the hammering and the uh, work going on in the in the pit with them from the Martian side. IKEA um, flat pack end of the world. The flat pack, yeah, the flat packers are still working away. Um, he he managed to find this sort of this boat and he floats down the river for a bit and then down the boiling river for a bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then he's um, he bumps into this uh, in this field. This cure. This is it. A curate or curate? Curate. A uh, curate. Curate. Um, and this guy is um, obviously this is sort of a is he a, is he a vicar or a, like a, something similar to he's a religious man isn't he anyway yeah so a curate is sort of a trainee vicar so before you're allowed yeah. to be a proper vicar who looks after a church all by himself you're a curate which is a sort of you can do some of the stuff but they basically give you a three year posting to have a look at you and be like is he gonna cope with it is he no he's fine all right he can have a he can have a parish is how it works yeah. basically. Yeah, and um, yeah, I suppose you get a feel for his inexperience with that kind of thing here because yeah. it's a very human reaction that the, the, yeah. the curate is basically saying, you know, you can't believe what's happening, and yeah. um, it's this—it's almost like a, a conversation between hope and despair. This isn't it, where the, yeah. the curate is, is just is just despairing, and yeah. the narrator is saying, "No, pull yourself together. There's still, you know, we've got to we've got to carry on." Um, I'll tell you the bit I loved about this conversation because it's you're right it's a conversation between hope and despair and one would expect that somebody who spends their time you know dwelling on infinite love and you know redemption and rebirth and so on would be the one bringing hope into this conversation but it's so clear that his worldview is so it's religious to be sure but it's also bound up in his national identity and this idea that you know good things happen to good people and i'm a good person because of where i'm from and what i do and all of that sort of thing um hmm. and i love the line that um that the hg wells comes out with in return which is basically did you think bad things weren't happening anywhere in the world like hmm. you have to and I think all people of faith go through this experience, I certainly did, where you have to confront the fact that if you believe this, then you have to believe it in the worst scenario. You know, you have to believe that it's true when applied to the worst scenario, not just because you happen to be in a position of relative comfort and ease. And it's this, it's this, it can be this hugely traumatic kind of thing to lose the connection that you've had between beliefs you hold and maybe haven't thought through completely um and your own physical well-being and realizing that if it wasn't if if it's going to be true when everything's great it has to be true when everything's crap Mm. um and i I just love this guy being presented with with the sort of blunt fact of that because i think to a certain extent that that still happens today I, i see that 
um, I, I should say that I live in a place where most of my social circle are Americans and uh, love my American friends. I love American culture. But you routinely have people come over and visit them who are just absolutely appalled at what the world is like. And they're often religious people. And they see the poverty. That's uh, I live in Cambodia. There's quite a bit of poverty here. And they see that and it really shakes them. And I don't think that that's uh, naive of them. You know, you only know what you've seen. But you come here and you see it, and it requires you to rethink a little bit of what you what you believe, uh, or at least the way in which you believe it, and mm. and like how cheaply you believe it, or whether you're will, willing to really confront the difficulty in front of you, and and this whole interaction, and the thing that makes me is really blows me away about this interaction is that H.G. Wells was famously an atheist, and is held by. Um, uh, modern day humanists quite rightly as one of the kind of leading intellectual lights of the growth of that mindset in the late 1800s and um and and I, f- I find it really interesting that me you know I still come from a sort of faith background but I it's in this scenario to me it's the it's H.G. Wells voicing what was then probably quite a controversially atheist view who is voicing a far more fundamentally Christian view and that I just found I just love that I love encountering you know the eloquent thing that makes you reassess where things are and and there is also something very pleasing in in the image of you know a kind of naive man of the cloth being grabbed by the lapels and basically told to snap out of it and grow up there is something quite nice about that for me um but yeah, they're fascinating, really great. And it's, you know, I've, I've done five minutes on it, but it's two lines long, but it's just really deep, really fascinating stuff. Mm. Yeah, um, and sort of, I think part of it built into the, the what the curate's saying as well is how he, he can't believe it's happening to him because yes, or to them because yeah. because he's um you know you know i believe in god and this how can this happen and i like yeah. the response that like he says you know god's not an insurance agent you don't you don't yeah. take that i believe to make sure stuff doesn't happen what a to line. You. and i'll tell you what that's still a theological position which needs to be debunked today and it's brilliant and it's just mm. you know what a one-liner flipping hg mm. wells go to the top of the class so they um they they hear more gunfire and um, some kind of weird crying and then silence um, as they they head off um, and, and try and keep moving. Like, I think I think I think they're, they're now trying to get to London again, um, yeah. and I'm, I, I kind of lost why he's no longer trying to get to Leatherhead. Um, but did you get that's that? an interesting one actually? Because now you mention it, yeah, I've no idea because the maybe, next chapter is all set in London. Yeah, so I just assumed that was where he was trying to go. Yeah, maybe he's trying to get to London via Leatherhead. I don't know. We'll find out next 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 week, yeah. I suppose. Um, but yeah, chapter sixteen is the last chapter for today, and this is this is titled "In London." Um, it's actually it's the narrator's brother's account of London um, relayed through the narrator. So we assume they're going to meet up at some point. Um, but it's basically it's quite interesting uh, because you get to see what's happened so far from the point of view of someone further away now. Um, so this guy, this guy's younger brother, um, he hears sort of reports at first about um, about the Martians arriving, and then you know the papers say that the Martians fired on some people who got too close, yeah. um, but they can't they can't leave the pit because they're you know these big. Um, uh, uncomfortable, uh, uh, you know, uh, big fat things that can't move because of the gravity. <laughs> basically, if we're going to, yeah, <laughs> as simply as possible. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. They're on their lounges and they're not getting up. Is the impression we get? 
yeah. uh, these, these aliens. Yeah, and again, like we said last week, there's this, this sense of normality in London and the slow travel of news how people only slowly realise what's actually happening. And again, it's not because of any attempted cover-up, it's just because news travels so slowly at this time. Yeah. And the first they really know of it is of, of further problems are when the trains are suddenly cancelled. Um, and then the sun, Sunday papers arrive. Um, so this would be the day that, you know... Um, the day that the narrator wakes up in Maybury and meets the artilleryman, and this is when uh, they get the reports of the the machine guns haven't worked and the gun emplacements have been thrown up to check the advance, um, but that the the Martians can actually move out of the pit. Uh, but yeah. still, there's not much alarm in London. It seems still feels a long way away. Um, and then those first reports of refugees come in. This is re- I love how it's sort of you just again you get that slow build up as people slowly work out what's going on. Um, yeah, and the sort of the military come through on the way out. Um, so there's like these big sort of carriages full of soldiers heading out to sort of form the cordon. Um, and there's like a bit of banter going back and forth with the people in London saying, oh, you'll get eaten and stuff. And they're shouting, we're the beast tamers and all this. <laughs> it's so real, isn't it? I just love that. That's exactly mm. what would happen. He's like, are you going to get eaten, are you? Ah, I'm going to fucking write up. Get me a beer in. Brilliant. Loved it. Yeah. And there's, there's the news of the, sort of the speed of the Martians, how quickly they can move in these fighting machines um, by Sunday evening. And there are these plans in place now to destroy cylinders as soon as they arrive, because obviously more cylinders are arriving. And um, there are these high explosives that are being manufactured to try and blow them up as soon as they arrive. Mm. Um, They assume there'll be at most 15 marsh, because three cylinders have successfully landed. They expect that that must mean there are around 15 Martians, because you tend to get five a cylinder appears. Yeah, yeah. Um, then the ref- refugees arrive, um, and they're sort of. It's interesting. They're blaming the government for not sort of acting quickly enough, um, and sort of destroying the invaders without this inconvenience. Apparently, <laughs> people are just pissed off that it hasn't been handled <laughs> as quickly as as it could have been. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that because that is how people react to things like that, isn't it? Like. They just moan that yeah, you know, the government aren't doing it right. They're not trying hard enough, and they've not moved quickly enough. And sometimes they're right, and sometimes they just sort of. Could you really do a better job? Well, yeah. Also, what what data are you going on here? Are you sorry? <laughs> you become an expert on fighting aliens by reading, I don't know, forty in times or whatever. Like, of course you. Can. Am I missing something here? I love. There's just something about the kind of sheer audacity of somebody being like rubbish. The government can't fight an alien save the life should put me in there or punch him twice he'll be out be fine no <laughs> yeah. it's fucking alien he's got a laser mounted to his chest what are you gonna do tickle him no yeah it had a bit of a feel to me of like um sort of annoy- the annoying football supporter you got to sit next to at a game who thinks oh, he, like, yeah. he could do better than that's exactly it isn't it that is exactly <laughs> what are you doing bringing him off now what is it 60 minutes sort of a time is that to bring somebody off <laughs> Um, yeah, every time like a player miscontrols the ball, it's like, oh, how can you, how can you miscontrol? And you get paid this much money. It's like, it doesn't <laughs> make it, you invincible. <laughs> I tell you what, you come down here and see if you can do it. <laughs> yeah. So at this, at this point, there's the sound of distant gunfire as well in the distance. And gunfire is in that the large cannon firing. 
yeah. um, which is which again is is disquieting for people, but they they don't immediately feel they need to run. Um, it still feels another step away from that. But then during the night, like in the early hours of the morning, yeah, um, the uh, the narrator's brother can't sleep, and he. He, he sort of he he hears knocking on doors and running up and down the street, and he looks out of his window and there's this red glow in the distance, and then the church bells start to ring a warning and people are shouting. Literally, the Martians are coming, um, which I think is yeah. where, you know where yeah. you get that cliche from. Now. I was going to say the Martians are coming. The <laughs> Martians are coming. Um, and then I think there's a there's, there's a a guy shouting, you know, London in danger and fearful massacres in the Thames Valley and all this. And it's because of this, there's this new weapon that's being used now. And apparently yeah. it's this black smoke, which the Martians are releasing and effectively suffocating um, the, the the gun emplacements to allow them to move through, which is sort of a, it's like this, this arms race. They've moved a step, step ahead in this. this so, you know, the, they had the they, they landed. They couldn't move around at all, so it looked like they were going to get wiped out. Then they could start moving with these tripods, but then the guns looked like they were being quite effective. So they've built gun emplacements all over the place. So you think actually maybe they're going to, the, maybe the humans are going to be successful after all. And suddenly there's a new weapon now which can nullify those emplacements. Yeah, um, yeah, ice bleak in it. Yeah, 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 and and so suddenly they realise the population of London slowly comes to the realisation that they are in danger, and there's this panic as people try to try to escape. Yeah, yeah, it's it's I. There was something about the way this black smoke was described as well, which managed to make it, mind you, at the end of a century in which, you know, gas masks and the use of chemical weapons of you know, heartbreakingly become so common in warfare around the world. Um, still managed to get me in touch with the the original sort of elemental horror of being attacked by the air, you know? Mm. And and just like the very fact that breathing in is what's going to kill you um, was really powerful. And then I realized that actually it was, again, this prefigures the, the First World War by 20 years, you know, yeah. where the First World War was when mustard gas was used. It's this horrendous fucking thing. Um you know, and the, what people look like when they're dying of mustard gas inhalation is just is beyond horror. Mm-hmm. Um, and this made me think of that. And again, it makes me wonder: was was Wells just did he did he have a literal time machine, or had mm-hmm. he just seen conflict somewhere, or was he just you know have this horrendous imagination? Because because yeah. it's it was something about it was just so powerful about the way it was expressed. Yeah, I think it's his, I, I would say it's his imagination um, because um, I think because this hasn't, the, the time he's written this, this thing was sort of in theory just being developed but hadn't actually been used. And as you say, it was only really used in the, for the first time in the First World War, mustard gas and yeah. using gas, um, using poison gas. And it actually in the First World War turned out to be less effective than they expected. And yeah. part of the reason is because it depends on what happens in the atmosphere if the wind gets up you don't know which way it's going to go you don't know when you don't know how quickly it's going to evaporate and stuff and i think this black smoke is sort of more effective than it realistically would be because you didn't really know because it's such a new idea as a weapon Um, and i wonder if he'd written this in 30 years time whether that um would have been something that he would have still gone for um as a sort of sci-fi kind of guy um 
but yeah, so so this is this is the, the thing that's helping the uh, the margins push through now. Um, <laughs> I, I really do like the way that um, it's described here. Something H.G. Wells is really great at is just sort of just little touches that really put you in the moment. And this was another one where they, he says his brother could he could hear running footsteps up and down the corridor and banging on doors within the house um, yeah. where, he, where he lived in the sort of um, I think it's like a flat he's living in. Um, and that just felt very realistic. Like, yeah, you could. That's what would happen. Like, you'd see the panic in the street, and then suddenly you'd hear it as it spreads to the house, and there's people running up and downstairs and banging and shouting. And um, yeah. so that did just drop me out of it. The landlady bursts into his room and like says, "You've got to get out. Got to get out." And closely followed by her husband, who's described described as closely followed by her husband ejaculating. <laughs> and I'm just imagining. I like, read he that was, and I was like, "Are we gonna? Are we gonna do the ejaculation?" Jo-? I'm so. Oh glad. hell yeah, we got to Yeah. <laughs> so because it made me think that they were like literally like the landlady oh, and the landlord were getting down to it. Running in after her. I'm not fin. Oh, I am. Oh, never mind. Okay, yeah, no, you carry on. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's having a whale of a time. The, the <laughs> landlord behind her. Well, yeah, um, I'm just so excited about this alien invasion. <laughs> no. I assume that it means yelling or exclaiming <laughs> yeah, loudly, course, yeah. but but I really you're right. Just oh dear, oh, images I can't get out of my forebrain. Thanks, mate. Thanks, appreciate that. Yeah. Um. So, uh, the, his brother gets what money he can, um, and hurriedly leaves the um leaves the flat and and tries to leave the city, and uh, and that's where we leave it for this week. Look at that. There you go. Drama. That's drama. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, really enjoyed that that part. And it's um yeah, it's kicking off. It's kicking off. It's all kicking off. Great yeah. stuff. Shall I um give you where we're reading to next week? Please do. Is he rustles <laughs> and tries to find Shall I flip, the reference? Flip, 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 flip. Give you the flip, 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 flip. I've got it written down. Flip, 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 flip. <laughs> Insert edit here. Um, I this is gold, find. man. This is all stuff. Oh, here we are. Yeah, shall we go? It's not. It's not going to be the the biggest section to do for next week, um, but I'm sure you know you, you get over that. Um, I'll deal. Um, if we read as far as book two, so we're going as far as the Earth under the Martians. Um, spoiler alert! It doesn't look like it's going to end well for the uh, for the military, <laughs> <laughs> unless that's a deeply ironic title for book two. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we're reading as far as the chapter. It's called Underfoot. Yeah. Is the chapter that we're reading as far as? Yeah. As part of this part two of the book, The Earth Under the Martians. As ever, as we said at the start, if you want to get your own thoughts into us, it's uh, sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. That's sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can get us on Twitter at sharkliveroil. Till then, Dave. Keep Til a then, watchful man. eye out. I will. For, tripods. For tripods on the horizon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and ejaculating landlords. You see either of those, you've got to get out. That's all I've got Tripods to say. on the horizon and ejaculating landlords, I think, was a prog rock album from 72, wasn't it? <laughs> King Crimson. <laughs> all right. See you next week. See you later.